So on the previous episode, everyone involved wanted Barkley back, right? When I say the previous episode, I mean the previous Barkley episode. Everyone wanted him back. Everyone loved working with Dwight Schultz. Everyone liked the character. This is the funny part, though. They decided not to just bring him back and have him be there. And I actually think that was the right move. Even though I think we could have had more Barkley over the years, the hard truth is just having him be there, nah, that doesn't work. As I've always said, if you're going to do something in fiction, you have to do something with purpose. You have to, you have to do something with it, right? So you can't just have a character be like, hey, I'm Barkley. No, no, no. And they didn't want to just have him be the geek who's shy again, right? So instead, uh, they decided to go ahead and have him come back and have him be supercomputered. And that was actually Joe Minoski's idea. In fact, he wrote this episode, and it shows. <laughs> because it's got some great character interactions, some good character analysis stuff, and makes absolutely no sense when you sit back and think about it. <laughs> I love Minoski. I really do. Ooh, oh, voice is starting to go up. I really do like him. But I want to mention one other thing really quick here, and that's the fact that this episode has the second longest teaser in Star Trek history. Yeah, I know. I actually went out and timed them, because there's the episode, in, uh, If Wishes Were Horses, over on Deep Space Nine, which is 6 minutes and 32 seconds. And then there's the episode Deadlock in Voyager, which is 7 minutes and 2 seconds. And then surpassing this is a uh, Discovery episode called The Wolf Inside, which has a 14-minute one. But this one is 7 minutes and 21 seconds, so second longest teaser ever. Which is funny, because it doesn't really feel that long. The majority of it is taken up by the play with Barkley. But I also say it's funny because in those other cases, the long teaser didn't quite make sense. If Wishes for war Were Horses, that was just a weird decision. In Deadlock, it barely had anything to do with anything, and I don't remember Wolf Inside off the top of my head. Here it makes perfect sense. Teasers have to serve a function. They do. They have to inform the people who've watched, who watch the show regularly, who sat down to watch this show, they have to inform them what the episode's going to be. And for the people who are just flipping through channels or are saying what's on or are hanging around from the previous ep uh, show or channel or, whatever, or program or whatever, they have to catch their interest and then give them a hook so that they keep watching. So it has to serve both of these purposes. But for a recurring guest star to return like this, you don't really need the former or the latter in the same manner. Because this is an episode for people who've watched TNG. These kind of, well, this isn't really serialization, but this is as close as Star Trek usually gets to serialization. When they bring back a regular returning guest star. So they, they don't really need to sell you on it because they already have. Barclay's back. That's the sell. So they just forego the idea of selling you know, new people to the show entirely and focus on the fact that the episode is for recurring fans. Now, I'm not saying every episode has to be that way. Quite the contrary. But I do think that if you're making an episode that is for recurring fans, you should focus on that. That's why it doesn't make sense in the other cases. But anyways, I also want to give, as I often do, special praise to Dwight Schultz. The man is an amazing actor, and I've loved him and everything. But in this episode, he has to play a bad actor... Yes, he has to act as a bad actor. He has to act as a good actor. He has to act as himself, where he's still kind of recovering, but still has some hesitancy. Then he has to act like himself, slowly coming to grips with the fact that he's intelligent and able to, to talk and think his way through situations. Then he has to act like the one who knows everything and is basically you know, superior about every situation. He has to perform all of those roles in this episode, and he nails it because he's Dwight Schultz. 
As an aside, uh, Cyrano de Bergerac was an inspired choice for this, for those of you not aware of the overall premise of the play. The idea is that the, you know, the main character, the guy who Barclay was playing, is someone who is not particularly attractive. Uh, in fact, he is hideous by the standards of the time. And he wants to woo a woman who is in love with someone else. And he is actually wooing her on behalf of the someone else. And long story short is the p focus of the play, thematically speaking, is someone who feels insignificant but nevertheless has a great deal of intelligence, passion, ca competency within them has to overcome the fact that they are looked down upon by those who they seek the favor of. Make sense? Obvious choice in hindsight, but I imagine most people haven't actually watched or performed Cyrano de Bergerac, so they, they're like, eh? <laughs> Now... <clears throat> There's a part of the episode, still in the teaser, where Barclay is performing, and he's not doing that well. Now, I have seen a lot of acting in my life, uh, not just on television, I mean in person, in the theater, because I used to do the theater circuit way back in the, um, in the high school and college years range. And what I like best about that is Barclay is not a bad actor. He's not a good one. But he's not bad. He remembers his lines with only one exception. He remembers his cues. He knows the type of emotion to get across. And really, the only flaw in his acting is he keeps getting flustered. I like that. Because the implication there is that Barclay himself does have the creative capacity to act. He is just constantly stumbling over his own hesitation and his lack of self-confidence. I like that a lot. And that is very accurate to Barclay's character. I also like what Troy says, the very f act of putting yourself up on stage like that, that takes courage. That's a very difficult and dangerous and, and task tasking thing to do. I know that sounds strange, but I have discovered through many interactions with many people over the years that, you know, everyone jokes about, you know, the second worst f fear is of being, in, you know, speaking in front of a public uh, audience or whatever, public speaking. And yet at the same time, most people don't understand that that really does apply almost universally. A lot of people just can't bring themselves. They either, uh, they just shut down, like, no, no, I'm not going up there, no. Or once they get up there, then they shut down. It does take a lot to do that, especially when you're someone who has been openly ridiculed before on the ship you're still on, so in the same community, in other words. So I like how Troy acknowledges that and, uh, you know, compliments him for it, because I would be doing the exact same thing. See, Troy hits the middle part, and I mention that uh, because there's honesty, there's deception, cruelty, and politeness, and these things kind of segue into each other. Data is portrayed as someone who is like, well, his, his performance wasn't good. And so he would walk up to Barclay and say, your performance wasn't good. Now, Data does not have the capacity for cruelty. But if Data did that, that would be a cruel act. If someone is just starting to reach out, to push beyond the bubble of their comfort zone, the last thing they need is to someone smack them in the face with cruel truth. Now that's the catch right there. Because obviously honest feedback is a necessary thing. Everyone needs honest feedback. I need honest feedback. I ask it from you guys all the time. You know, it's it's a constant thing for me. It's one of the reasons I try to stay so active with regards to, you know, you guys, the community. But honest feedback does not mean cruel feedback. Cruel feedback, the, the distinction is usually thus. Cruel feedback doesn't help the situation. 
That's, that's the simplest and easiest way to define it. If data just walked up and said, that was crap, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't change anything. That doesn't help anything. If data walks up and says, I feel like you know, your performance about such and such and such and such was inaccurate because of the stuff that Barclay already knows, again, that's not going to help. Telling Barclay what he already knows, that he stumbled, that he had the hair in his face, that he forgot the line, that doesn't assist. That's not honest feedback in the sense of being useful. It's honest feedback in the sense of being cruel. Make sense? If, on the other hand, someone walks up and says, you are making steps in a direction that you need to keep going in. You're not there yet, but you're definitely improving. That is honest feedback. Trying to build up the man's confidence and his ability to, to focus and his ability to hold himself on stage, that is the kind of feedback that's needed. Make sense? And I know this sounds strange, but this is something I've dealt with so many times in my life in theater and as a manager, actually, as well, but also just with people in real life. Straight honesty is not always the answer because straight honesty doesn't apply in a complex situation. See, that's, I shouldn't even say it that way. It's more like simple honesty doesn't apply. Because again, if you say, you're crap, there's no feedback there. That there's no information. There's no, nothing to work off of. There's nothing to improve. There's nothing to learn from. There's nothing to gain. All you're saying is, nope. Binary, one-digit piece of information that just tells you that you weren't good. Make sense? On the other side, of course, there's politeness, which can lead to deception. Now, Riker, I think, was too far on that side, and I do like how they show both sides of this. Data was going to be the cruel, and uh, Riker was going to be the polite. In Riker's case, he was basically applauding far harder than, let's be honest, he really deserved in order to be polite and basically for no other reason. This is why I started by talking about Troy, the woman who hit the balance point. You're not, you're not great, but the fact that you're doing this at all is good. And you're going to keep getting better as long as you keep putting yourself through this and working at it. Make sense? I, just, I know I'm talking a lot about this topic, but this is what Joe Minoski is good at. Complex character interactions. It's, 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 his hot, it's his hallmark, as far as I'm concerned. So... This is awesome stuff, and I wanted to promise, uh, pre uh, stay on it for the premise for all. Now, <clears throat> the probe decides to try and reprogram the array. As we find out later, that doesn't work. Tried to reprogram the shuttle. That didn't work. Tried to reprogram Geordi, visor. Tried to reprogram Barkley. Okay, that worked. Then the, then the probe, after having successfully reprogrammed someone, goes after the Enterprise. I'm curious what your guys' headcanon is for why that is. And I say that specifically because we don't actually know why that happened. I have a theory. I have a theory why the probe went after the Enterprise. It's because in the original version of this script, the Cytherians were bad guys and were actually a hostile, you know, malicious force. That was eventually written out to make them more passive and... Well, they're not exactly nice people, but, you know, they're not evil people. And thus, we have some of the actions that don't quite line up as well as they would with the original function of the script. And that's why I think the probe becomes a th uh, you know, an Act 1 threat and to have an Act 1 action scene. Uh, there's a bit where Barclay starts to show his chops. It's actually funny to me that they have Geordi double-check his work because they really don't have time for that. The probe was following them at warp 2. Then they pull out of warp, and then the probe is still following them now that they're not at warp. And then they spend about a minute and a half, I didn't time it, um, just sitting around standing talking about Barclay's plan and whether or not they should do it before they finally do something about it. 
Anyways, Joe Manoski. <clears throat> now, I like the simple humanity that Schultz manages to bring to his characters. After they do it, he lets out, like, he, he visibly deflates a little bit, like, oh, phew, it worked. And he gives this little pleased smile. And then he notices Jordy, and he's like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I didn't mean to step over your toes. This is the, the second version of Barkley we see in this episode. Now, quick question. They super magnify the shields. It's, it's, by the way it's stated, it's not actually fully technobabble. The implication is that they can only do this for a brief period of time and that it costs them. Okay. Why do they never do this again? <laughs> I'm just curious. It's not like he used space magic. The tech was just him integrating with the, the existing interface, right? Anyways. <clears throat> so... Several times they mentioned that Barclay is effectively reprogrammed. I have a question for you guys. Do you think he is fully under the influence of the Cytherians? Again, keeping in mind the original intent of the script, we do have to keep that kind of thing in mind when discussing these works. Or, do you think he just has the safety net? And I point that out that in that way very specifically, because the idea, and I've heard many people, many fans, talk about this over the years, is the idea is that Barkley just feels more comfortable with himself. He feels confident. He isn't afraid of failure. And there is a difference between confidence and arrogance, but anybody who's seen both knows the distinction between the two immediately. Now, Barkley actually tra traipses overconfidence into arrogance, and I'm actually going to talk about that in a minute, but for the mo most of the episode, the overwhelming majority of the episode, actually, he's simply in the realm of confidence. He knows now that he can actually talk and be in a way that he always wanted to. And he no longer needs to be afraid of what to do with his hands, right? And so that's my take on it, at least at first. It is worth noting, however, that at some point or another, it's very clear that the programming effectively takes control. And for certain parts of the episode, it's pretty likely that what we're seeing effectively isn't Barkley. As he himself says at the end of the episode, I, could, I remember what I did, but not how or why. In other words, even his own motivations were alien to him. And that's important for distinguishing that. That's just my opinion, of course, as ever. Curious about yours. Now, there's a nice bit. As always, I praise this when people actually notice when someone is acting out of character. And, you know, Barkley, I like Barkley's reaction. For the first time in my life, I'm someone who I actually want to be. Do I have to ask why? And Jordy's like, yeah, yeah, we do. And Jordy's right. It's almost a shame. <laughs> but I can feel Barkley in that situation, you know. So they debate what to do with him. Now, I kind of like that scene, because it's basically the senior staff in Picard's office. I like that scene for two reasons. First, the obvious. They're acknowledging something's wrong with him, but not in the usual sense. He's done nothing malicious, malevolent, hostile, or really anything. He's just a crew member who has got a bigger brain. Second of all, I like the fact that they are going, you know, actively on top of this and going to watch this situation, and at the same time are still treating him like he's a human being, rather than like he's a threat. That'll, of course, fall apart by the end of the episode, but at least it's nice to see it here. I also have to admit, I love when Riker's like, you mentioned he made a pass at you. You didn't mention if he was successful, and she just grins. Just grins. <laughs> so then the array starts to blow up, and Barkley goes down and says, okay, let's build this interface. I'll tell you how to make it. Then there's a time skip. They mentioned they have about 10 minutes to make this happen. Maybe about 40 seconds pass, and then 
you know, cut, and then it's like, we have 20 seconds left. So obviously it took Barkley roughly nine minutes, give or take, maybe closer to eight, to actually tell the computer how to build this interface, which I find interesting because that makes sense. He was doing it vocally. What I find funny is he probably made the neural interface first so then he could do the rest quicker, you know. And then, oh my God, Barkley's the computer. Dun, dun, dun. This is when the episode loses me. Oh, excuse me. I'm still kind of sick. Please forgive me. Because at this point, the episode treats Barkley as the threat of the week and, so, and an obstacle that they need to overcome and never establishes why. It, one of the things that's always kind of irritated me about Star Trek is anytime there's someone who is stronger or smarter, is it more powerful or smarter, they are almost universally portrayed as automatically... You know, <laughs> arrogant, you are nothing but children to me. I am superior kind of a thing. I don't buy it. I don't. I'm sorry. I, I just, it, it's irritating. It, a few times, sure. You know, a few individual cases, yeah, I could buy that. But it happens over and over in Star Trek. I think one of the only exceptions ever is, you know, a character who I'm not going to mention right now over on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> right? In almost every other case, they just immediately go into town immediately. This is why I mentioned the programming thing. Because it actually irritates me how Barkley just sort of suddenly becomes the threat. And he does. He gets egotistical and arrogant. It's like, I, you know, a, a parent cares for a child, but that does not mean they must never leave the crib. I mean, come on. <laughs> Again, a lot of this dialogue makes more sense if this is actually a legitimate threat, which, as we've established, it's not. So they all automatically assume that Barkley being part of the computer is intolerable. What I don't quite understand is why. I know that sounds like a strange statement, but nobody ever bothers to take time and effort to establish why this is a bad thing. You could do that. There's ways to do that. There's ways to show, you know, maybe he's uh, causing issues with the ship. Maybe it's an invasion of privacy. Uh, maybe it's because they're concerned they can't get him out, and so the actual threat is to him. Like, that's the, the, what I originally thought, because one of the first things they establish is he can't get out because his mind is expanded into the computer, which is some nonsense, but whatever. And so separating it will kill him. Ergo, the threat is not to the ship or the crew, but it's to Barkley. But then every other scene treats it as the opposite, as if the threat is to the crew and the ship. Without establishing a why, in fact, I pointed out at 34 minutes and 30 seconds into this 44-minute show, that's when they finally establish the first time that he disobeys a direct order from Picard, because he has to build this temporal transmit thing in order to go to the center of the universe and to meet the one who's been there ever since Cybok left him. <sighs> I, I don't get this. I don't get why they went this route with it. Uh, well, that's not true. I exactly know it, because... It was supposed to be evil. We already discussed this. I keep bringing it up because it really does help to explain so much about why the last act it just kind of flops, in my opinion. So, <laughs> you know, I do have to mention something real quick. It's sure a good thing because he just does some alterations to the ship to affect subspace to make a rift, right? Wow, that's really interesting tech. I'm, sh I'm sure glad that they wrote down all of how to do that so when Voyager later gets stuck in the Delta Quadrant, they can just warp back. Anyways, um, I already made my comments on the one and the FF, uh, FF wow, the, the Star Trek V parallel. <sighs> Let's talk about the Scytherians really quickly. Before I go anywhere else, what do you think of the Scytherians? You can pause the video if you want to, because I'm going to immediately go into my own thoughts on this. Doo -doo -doo -doo. So I think the Scytherians are dicks. 
These people reach out with probes to forcibly and without consent reprogram people or technology in order to either send information back or literally physically return to their home so they can study it. I've heard the term armchair general, but I've never heard of an armchair explorer before. And they're kind of, well, they got that same arrogant thing. He almost doesn't even respond to Picard, as Picard is clearly, obviously communicating with him in a way that is obviously indicative of a species that has the capacity for basic linguistic communication. And yet he still insists on being, oh, yes, a continuous physical external integument, which usually applies to plants, not people. I'm just saying, yes, I did look it up. <laughs> Anyways. And so, I mean, what happens to, to make a species that loves exploring, but only on the weekends, you know? Is there anything else on? Like, there's just an inherent laziness implied in these people, which is strange. Either that or they've got some kind of cult cultural modus operandi for sitting there and in refusing to leave out for dangers or threats or whatever. Considering the ludicrous, effectively magic levels of science they have, I mean, they send the Enterprise back, right? And they pull Barclay out despite, oh, we can't do that, you know. Anyways. They also, well, I have to wonder why we've never heard of these people before. And why we never hear of them again, right? Like, especially since they send people right back. At the same time, though, I want you to picture, like, them pulling, a Kling pulling this on a Klingon ship. Just picture that. Oh, my God, it's a giant head. And they're just batlething at the, at the projection, you know, trying to get rid of it. I, I actually, what I really want to know is what, the, what would happen or has happened when the Cytherians encountered the founders for the Dominion. That would be fun. I don't have much else to say about this episode. I do like how Troy and Jordy both embrace Barkley as a friend at the end of the episode. I like that. It's a very human moment, and more to the point, it gets across the simple and succinct idea that you don't need to be the best to be our friend. I like that. Especially for someone like me, who is most assuredly not the best. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, sick though I be. I'll see you next time, guys.